Hello and welcome to another episode of the Silk and Steel podcast. I am your host Carl Za. Today we will continue China history chronologically with JJ. Welcome back to the show, JJ. Hey, Carl. Good to be back. Uh, it's been two months. I mean, not two months. Two weeks since we last recorded,、um, and this is because my、uh, family trip to Japan.、Um, uh-huh. One of our Uh, Silk and Steel podcast patrons Marcel generously invited me、um, to go to Japan because he wanted to do、um, a documentary、uh, on China that that hopefully counters a lot of the sinophobic propaganda that's coming from mainstream、uh, media in the West right now. So、mm-hmm. while on the way to Japan, I, I brought my laptop because I wanted to. Uh, record while there, and I also wanted to play Fallout Four while I'm on the plane. And、yeah. you know what I didn't count on is、uh, the different. There's different power adapters you needed to go in different countries. So, like in Indonesia, we have one type of power adapter.、Uh, in the in the Philippines and Japan, they use different.、Um, yeah, the, the, the different power. Yeah, so I I would was I didn't.、Uh, Take into account of that fact because at the even at the Manila airport where we did a、um, uh, transit because、uh, we flew from Bali to Manila and then from Manila to Japan on Philippine Airlines. So even at, on, at the Manila airport, they have like kind of the almost like the international、uh, plugs. You, basically, any kind of plugs would work.、Mm-hmm. Like my Indonesian adapter still worked. So、yeah. on the plane, I was so excited to discover they have power outlet on the plane. So without thinking, I just plugged my power cord in, computer power, laptop power cord in, and next thing I know, my laptop wouldn't start.、Uh-huh. Um, so I thought, okay, I thought, okay, I totally fried my laptop.、Um, even when I went to Japan, we,、uh, my friend from Germany、uh, let me borrow his. Kind of international power adapter. It still didn't.、Uh, my my laptop would come up and say repair in progress, and then shuts down. <laughs> so I thought,、mm-hmm. oh crap! <laughs> But it turns out it,、um, you know, it's just a power issue. I when I came back to、uh, Bali a couple of days ago, it, it, it all worked out fine. I just have to plug it in, restart. So it was just a.、Uh, False alarm, but unfortunately, this is the reason why we didn't.、Uh, we had a little short interruption in the program, and uh, uh, and also I guess this is like a divine intervention to stop me from playing Fallout Four because I was playing, spending way too much time, and now <laughs> I am back on track. <laughs> right. So, the Japan trip was fine. It was was fun.、Um, But I, I did miss doing the Silk and Steel podcast on Chinese history. Did you、uh, learn Kyoto before Japanese archery before, or was, it, or was that you trying trying it out for the first time? Oh yeah, yeah. This is first time. So our our host Marcel,、um, who's at, also happened to be a patron of Silk and Steel podcast. So if you hear this, Marcel, thank you,、um, <laughs> thank you for a, a great being a great host and a wonderful trip. He so he's a Kyoto、um, he's a Kyoto practitioner and he's very excited about he's so excited about Kyoto he insisted that we all take 
uh, three days intensive Kyoto courses with his own Kyoto sensei. Um, And for other people who don't know, Kyoto is uh, literally the way of the bow. It's a, it's, you know, it's it's a training how, how to use a Japanese longbow, the Yumi. It's specifically a, a very ritualized form of Japanese archery practice that has been preserved. Yes, yes. Very ritualized because, you know, after Meiji restoration and abolishment of the samurai class, you know, you have guns now. You don't need, uh, you know, everybody Mm -hmm. saw the Indiana Jones way of the past now has been preserved in ritualized form as as sports. Uh, You know, they, they in Japan, they still teach you know, most people would know about kendo, the way of the sword, you know, and, but, but uh-huh. they also teach kyodo, the way of the bow in high school. What, after I take the kyodo class, I really gain appreciation for like skilled archers because damn, this is not easy, man. No. <laughs> Hollywood lied to us, you know, <laughs> the Hollywood made it too easy. Like I, I remember watching The Last Samurai. There was a portion when he first encountered the, you know, samurai archer shooting. You know, at that time I thought, okay, the, the, the motion was smooth, but it was kind of slow. Uh, Kyodo itself you know, is like you say it's a ritual it's it's performed with very deliberate precision but um once I start learning I realize man it it actually helps a lot if you slow it down because it's um it's very difficult you like every you have to pay attention to every detail um because like the the, the form is really important if you really yeah. want to have best results so so really like it it really helps if you actually slow it down breaks uh, breaks it into individual components Uh, i mean that's Mm -hmm. how you learn anything right but but it's um yeah it's not easy man it it takes years of training to be proficient uh, in shooting Mm -hmm. like in fact we got lucky because we kind of got uh, expressed uh, fast pass because the the sensei Mm -hmm. is a good friend of marcel our friend and uh he let us shoot, actually shoot with the arrow after only three days of training. Normally, they will have like one month of practice just to get to used to pulling the bow before they mm-hmm. even get to t- touch the arrow because that you know it is that hard. It is you, you need that much training. Mm-hmm. And we uh, so we I was very fortunate um, to have this experience. But uh, interestingly. The, the place we went to, this was a dojo in uh, Keia Itoshima in the Fukuoka prefecture. So Fukuoka was the landing site of the Mongol invasion, the first and the second Mongol invasion of Japan. So from this, our dojo, you know, if you look out, you could actually see the the, the beach of Hakata Bay that where. Um, you know, back in 2074 or 2082, you would have seen the Yuan Dynasty fleet parking out there mm-hmm. <laughs> ready for the invasion. Uh, so it was quite an experience. Um, and also, we, we, we also locked out because it was uh, just so happened the end of uh, Mar- the second half of March is a uh, cherry blossom season. So okay. the, the trees, yeah, the trees were blossom. I mean, it was, it was, it was great. It was a great experience. Uh, but most importantly, like it, get, it helped me gain a new pre- appreciation for archery. So we're talking about, uh, we're going to talk about more about like 
archery duels in the battles of spring and autumn period. Like you really, you know, give me the new appreciation for the skilled archers. But the, the Japanese bow, though, is a lip, is a bit different from the Chinese bow and the the, the composite bow used on a, Asian mainland, you know, because the the what we are used to, what we're used to in China is a composite bow that's popular on the step, and it's a uh, it's 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 much more shorter, and it's um it's made of several pieces, mostly with animal horn. Um, and held leather and held together with animal glue, but there's one weakness to the composite bowl is um, it, it cannot stand wet climate um, because because it uses animal glue. So when it rains, um, the if the the bowl gets wet, it, it basically the, the whole bowl falls apart and it becomes useless. And in fact, the traditional Chinese armies um, would use the weather against the steppe nomads. Uh, there was a mm-hmm. passage in the Book of Tang talking about an episode in the Tang Dynasty when the, um, when the ter- Eastern Turkic Khaganate invaded Tang territory. The Tang general, um, I believe it's actually the Tang emperor, the future Tang emperor, Li Siming, he told his uh, following followers, say like, uh, you know, it has been raining for the last three days. Now it's a perfect time for us to strike back because their bows are useless. <laughs> so we'll, we'll just rush them. <laughs> and, uh, and so, in, so Japan is very, has a very wet climate, very humid. Um, so the composite bow would not work in Japan. That's why J- Japanese, they have this, uh, the Japanese long bow is made from a single piece of wood. Mm. Um, and they also introduce like bamboo bow uh, much later, but but the idea is that because it's a uh, it's one piece, and to have the power, um, you know, it's a very big. The Japanese bow Yumi range uh, somewhere between two point one to two two point three meters long, and yeah. and the Japanese samurai they would have to fire it from the horseback. So so the bow itself is actually asymmetric. Um, yeah. you know, unlike the main. Asian mainland bowls. So, so because because it's so big, you you know it's impossible for you to hold it in the middle. So the in fact, I could if I could chime in here. I think in the period of Chinese history we are talking about, the Chinese are still using something that's the, this kind of one piece bow still, these kind of self bows, and then the composite bow from the steppe has not, I think, really made its way into China, or maybe I'm not sure if it, if it even exists at this time yet. The, um, in, I don't know how far back this shape, this Yumi shape, uh, like this big, very asymmetric, big shape of the Japanese bow goes. The Japanese military technology f- tends to be like more conservative then on the mainland because they fight like each other more than other people most of the time. So there is, uh, I guess, less need to do things di- things differently. My impression is that in like the 1600s onwards in Northeast Asia, there is this tendency towards bigger bows uh, that shoot bigger, heavier arrows over shorter distances than previously was the case. And it was one explanation I've heard. Uh, 
is that it's to uh, puncture armor, heavier armor at closer distance. That was the uh, Qing or Manchu style bow, was like that. And I'm yeah. not sure if Yumi had operated on a similar principle or not. If it was for cavalry archer, like I'm not sure how the I'm not sure whether the Japanese uh, mounted archer would, which is the samurai in general, tended to like ride up relatively close and loose, or whether they would fire volleys of lighter arrows, but in greater number from a distance. Uh, I'm pretty sure they ride pretty close and let loose yeah. because even during the time of Mongol invasion, you know, in 2074 and I mean, 1274 and 1282, uh, when the, the, the Japanese were surprised by the Mongol tactics because the Mongols, they move in block, you know, they rush them. Mm -hmm. Whereas uh, in, the, in the Japanese text, the, the history about this period, it says we are more used to have the samurai riding out individually and calling out the, the, the name of our opponent and then fight mm -hmm. personal battles one-on-one. -on -one. So they weren't used to like kind of the group fighting tactics of the Mongols. So yeah, so it's definitely probably less of, you know, riding. I mean, even the Mongols, um, you know, what, you know one, one of the way the Mongols fight is when they would, uh, sometimes they would dismount and then mm -hmm. shoot in valleys together yes so so yeah so so i mean like you know to 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 uh fire farther distance um whereas you know when they're on horse they usually ride close and then then shoot you from a fairly close distance the difference between japanese bow and the chinese bow uh in the fifth century a book away um, they did talk about the difference when the chinese went to japan they were surprised to find out the Japanese bow, the Yumi is asymmetric. It's big. Oh, it was asymmetric. asymmetrical even then. Let's get back to the spring and autumn period of China. Um, mm -hmm. Last time we have covered the tragedy of the Zhao family in the state of Jing. And uh, today we're going to move the lens back a little bit to uh, the whole geopolitical situation uh, during the 580s BC uh, China. So we have um, at this time, uh, for people who are just joining this podcast, China is divided into many, many states. And among these many states, four states are the strongest. This is a state of gene which is roughly correspond to roughly today's Sanxi province and southern Hebei province. Um, and we have state of Chu in the south um, along the Yangtze River Valley, but they're pushing north into the central plains, you know, near present day Henan area. But their base is a little bit south in, in today's Hubei province. And then we have uh, the state of Qin in the west, um, which corresponds to today's southern uh, Sanxi province, uh, you know, around the many people would have known uh, the city of Xi'an and the terracotta warriors. So that is state of Qin. That's where the state of Qin is located. And in the far east, uh, near the Sandong Peninsula, that's the state of Qi. Uh, and 
And so these are the four powers, the Jing, Chu, Qin, Qi. And among the four, uh, at this current time, after um, 597 BC, the Battle of B, the state of Chu had triumphed over state of Jin in that battle. So that made state of Chu kind of the default number one status. And state of Jin is number two. And state of Qin is probably the weakest of the four. And state of Qi is uh, occupied about number three position. And the two episodes ago, we talked about State of Qi started to challenge the hegemony of State of Jin in the north after State of Jin's defeat by State of Chu. And to preserve its, you know, hegemon status, State of Jin lays a smackdown on State of Qi. And so uh, the State of Jin somewhat salvaged its position as a hegemon, uh, at least among the northern half of the Central Plain states, uh, but it still faced the problem of two-front war, right? To its to the west, the state of Qin had been a traditional enemy to the state of Jin for the past few generations, for reasons we will um, get into later. We'll do another review of their historical relations, and and to the south is a most powerful state at the time, state of Chu. And state of Qin and state of Chu have made common alliance against the state of Jin. So state of Jin is facing a two-front war. It's it's faced state of Qin to its west, and state of Qin is allying with nomadic tribes uh, to the north of Jin to harass the Jin border. And and, and the situation is not ideal. So the 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 Jin ministers and the Duke of Jin start uh, try to devise a way to um, get out of this geopolitical conundrum. And one way they did was um, to wage a proxy war against state of Chu via another state in the far south. Uh, this is a state of Wu, uh, a new upstart state. Uh, at this time, still considering a barbarian state by most of the Central Plain states. And the state of Wu is concentrated around today's Shanghai area. Um, and and uh, and we covered this few episodes ago. Uh, state of Jin received help from a state of Chu defector, Wu Chen, uh, because Wu Chen, because of a particular scandal, and he abducted, well, he didn't abduct, he loped who is a famous beauty, Sha Ji, to the state of Jin. And, and in retaliation, the, the region of Chu, the Prince Yin Qi and Prince Ce, had um, Wu Chen's entire family executed. So to, to uh, you know, avenge his family, Wu Chen proposed to the Duke of Jin that send himself as a personal envoy to the state of Wu, and Wu Chen will teach the state of Wu in the in the art of uh, chariot fighting, uh, because back then the state of Wu in the south they most fight on boats, naval warfare. But to expand out out of that area, they would have to learn how to fight on chariots, like many central plain states. So Wu Chen accomplish his mission he left his own eld uh, eldest son in the state of Wu with a couple thousand Jin soldiers uh, along with their chariots and horses to train the state of Wu 
Uh, and the state of Wu rise very quickly and, and became a major threat to the state of Chu. And not only that, um, I think the Jin strategy was a little too successful. State of Wu actually quickly expanded north and um, by 580, uh, by 586, they started to attack, um, they started to attack into what is considered the traditional realm of the central plain states. Is they start to attack a small state of Tan, which had been a vassal state to the state of Lu. And, and this, is, this is when uh, the state of Lu prime minister, Ji Sun Xinfu famously said, um, you know, um, he said the central plain states have fallen, by, you know, have fallen by the wayside. Uh, by the wayside, uh, it lost uh, virtue, and that's that's why now the barbarians are attacking us. And uh, interestingly, state of Tan itself, it was actually not exactly seen as part of the central plain states either, because. As I mentioned during this time, um, uh, many states in the east, you know, are clustering around Sandung Peninsula. They they are indigenous to this region. They they existed before the Zhou Dynasty, and um, mm -hmm. it, many of them are are of the culture of Dongyi. Um, you know, in in the ancient times, the Chinese or Proto Chinese people uh, at this time called themselves Huasha, and and they call they have names for people, um, you know, neighboring them. So to the to the north is Di, to the east is Yi, to the south is Man, and to the west is Zhong. So the Yi people they they have their own different culture and customs. Uh, different from the other central plain states. Uh, and the state of Qi and state of Lu, they're, they're basically conquering military aristocracy that established themselves in this region. But uh, they follow the, the culture and the, right, the, the religious ceremony of the Zhou dynasty, but not their surrounding states. Um, and on one of the surrounding states is a, a state of, small state of Tan, which had been subjugated by state of Lu, but now they're under attack by state of Wu from the south, and they had to um, they had to uh, uh, became vassal of state of Wu. Um, so this is a situation um, around five eighty eight BC, and to get get out of the situation of the two Fang war. Uh, the Jin, Jin ministers and the Duke Jin of Jin, they got together and they devised a strategy. They decided, okay, um, we're facing the strongest powers, uh, the state of Chu in the south, and the fourth strongest power, state of Qin in the west. You know, the, the, the two-front war is not something we want to be in. So we need to find a way to dissolve their alliance and then at least concentrate on one hostile power at a time. Um, mm -hmm. this, is a, this is a very sensible strategy and uh, a strategy surprisingly that was not uh, adopted by the, our current hegemon in the United States because US mm -hmm. currently is 
<laughs> trying to fight a two-front war against Russia and China at the same time. And 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 it's through its own stupid foreign policy is pushing Russia and China together. So yeah. the state of gene that we're doing uh, you know, they were aware of uh, their predicament. So they're trying to get out of the, 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 the two-front war situation. And They probably did not have so many internal vested interests that conflict with executive decision-making back then. <laughs> yes. There's not like a, a whole bunch of nobles in the state of Jing whose career prospects depend on the animosity with the state of Qin or the state of Chu. And so you've got to keep placating these people and you cannot actually, and all of your attempts to pull one of these rivals away from the other are insincere and are obviously insincere because you're still hostile. But anyhow. That's, yeah, that's basically what's going on currently inside United States, right? Because yeah. as NATO... Even though some uh, realist strategists like uh, John Mearsheimer is saying, you know, what are we doing? We should make nice with Russia to concentrate on China. But there's a whole NATO bureaucracy that refused to be sidelined and to be make, made irrelevant, right? So they <laughs> must fight Russia. And at the same time, you know, like the, the, the Chinese, the China Hawks want to get their piece of the action uh, of the, you know, the defense contractor kickback. So, so no, we must have a hostile relationship with China and Russia at the same time. So now, interestingly, many in, in China, many Chinese people, they're very aware of their own history. For example, the history of spring autumn period and the warring states period. And there is a belief that the, the kind of the multi-state system uh, that existed in China during that time is quite similar mm. to the current um, state of world affairs in, in today's world. So, so mm -hmm. at least among the Chinese thinkers, you know, they are already thinking like, you know, maybe we can apply the lessons that we learned from yeah. the spring autumn period to, to today's um, geopolitical uh, reality. So this is another reason why it's actually very important to understand, at least from the Chinese perspective, the mm -hmm. this period of history, the, the spring autumn period, because it's very foundational to a lot of the Chinese thoughts. Um, you know, yes. uh, another 50 years from where we are right now, we're going to get into Confu life of Confucius. Uh, but not right now, he's not born yet. So we, we are paving the way for the arrival of Confucius at the, at the stage. Uh, now, back to the, the geopolitical situation. The, the ministers of Jin and the Duke of Jin, they agree upon one strategy. They are going to try to have a detente with the state of Chu because state of Chu is the most powerful. They, they want to wait, uh, push off confrontation with state of Chu as, as uh, long as possible. Meanwhile, they want, they, they want to concentrate their resources to deal with state of Qin to its west, because state of Qin, like I said, it's the weakest of the four great powers. 